Well, good morning and welcome to Chapel Street. We're so glad you are here with us. Um, and and want to invite uh, any of you that might be new here this morning, if you have just two or three minutes after the service, I want to encourage you to swing by our welcome desk. We would love to meet you personally, um, to answer any questions that you have about Chapel Street or ways to get connected or various programs we have for you or your family, any of that. Um, we would just love to put a, a, a name with a face and get to know you a little bit. And we have a, a small gift there as well uh, to give you. So if you just get a chance to swing by, we would, we would love to chat with you for a bit. Uh, throughout the month of November, many of you who were here will remember that we were highlighting opportunities in the fall that we have to connect with our neighbors. We talk about this as being a, a chapel on our street. And uh, of course, this Advent season um, provides a number of opportunities as well. And this month, um, our children's team and um, Gretchen Gilbert and a team of others have put together this neighbor magazine. We should have enough for one per family. Um, and its focus is really in two areas. One, it's on opportunities in this season for faith at home. So it, during this time to be able to sit down as a family and share a devotional together to remind ourselves what Advent's all about and this season of preparation and anticipation. And then secondly, there's ideas in here about ways in this season to connect with your neighbor, to build those relationships, to get to know their story and invite them to get to know yours and some big ways and small ways. But I think this will be a great resource for you and your family. We've produced a number of these over the years. And, uh, and so we have placed these in the lobby um, on the various tables. And when you exit today, I wanna encourage you to, to pick one of these up. I think, I think it'll be a blessing to you and your family uh, over Advent together. pray with me. We'll open up God's word together. Father, we do just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this community gathered here today on this important day. Um, as we've already celebrated these parents who are dedicating their children to you, Lord, and I pray that you would mark this in their memory. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, Lord, that you would continue to speak. Lord, Holy Spirit, that we would um, have our hearts to hear from you, Lord, ready to receive. As, as James wraps up this letter and invites us to meet with you in prayer. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. I don't know if you have ever seen uh, online um, what people sort of refer to as Ikea fails. Have you ever seen these? Have you ever searched this? You'll see like uh, there's all kinds of different examples that people will post of them trying to assemble Ikea furniture and, and it going horribly wrong. So it's like a, as a hobbyist furniture maker and woodworker, like Ikea is just offensive to me from the, from the get go, but I have at times had to go and like I didn't have the like year that it would take me to build whatever I was gonna build. And so we've done this sort of thing. And, and you go to the store and there's like the promise of what the end result is supposed to look like. And then you take it home and in the experience of assembling it, oftentimes you get very different 
results. Very different experience. In fact, I brought a picture of just one guy's just uh, uh, outrage as, as he tries to do this. And I, I mention this because I, I wonder if at times if we don't have similar sort of experiences when it comes to how we understand and think about prayer. Sometimes when we're reading in God's word, we see very clear words like promises as it relates to prayer. We, we take that away, we're encouraged by it, and then in the experience of it, we feel like the end result doesn't resemble what the ultimate promise was. And how do we understand that? We're wrapping up today um, our fall series in James, where James writes to these very early Christians, some of the very first Christians living in Jerusalem just after Jesus has uh, ascended into heaven. And as we've worked our way throughout this letter, we've seen how James is is instructing, he's giving this very clear, very powerful, uh, at times very direct, even borderline blunt instructions, this action-oriented life that he lays out. How life as a follower of Jesus is to be this lived-out display of the faith that we have in Jesus. This is visual evidence that what we say about him we believe to be true. And to that point, as he's wrapping up this letter to the early church in, in chapter 5, he has this statement, and Pastor Jeff referred to this last week, but this is verse 12. So of everything he said about what life in Jesus looks like, he kind of puts this capstone on it in verse 12. This is what he says. He says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you will not fall under judgment. And in other words, James writes, let your life reveal what you affirm to be true about Jesus. You don't need any other oath. Let it be evidenced and lived out in, in your life. So James, in doing this, he, like, he leaves no room for kind of the compartmentalized version of life and faith where we have certain sections of our life that are surrendered to Jesus and others, he's saying all of it belongs to Jesus. And when we become aware of areas in our life where I've tried to maintain control, I've tried to kind of live under my own authority, James continually invites us back into this posture of confession and, and ultimately of surrender. A big part of this, and we, again, we, Pastor Jeff talked about this last week, is in the first half of, of James, he grounds this idea, this understanding, this vision of the enduring life, the enduringly faithful life in Christ. He grounds it all in a future hope. Remember back in, in verse seven of chapter five, he said, be patient until the Lord's coming. At the end of verse eight, he said, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. How in our salvation history, the next event that is going to happen is going to be Jesus' return and restoration of all things. And so James, as he has been throughout this entire letter, he once again, as he finishes what he wants to write to this early church, becomes extremely practical. He's saying in view of this future promise, right, for an original audience who was reading this under um, their waiting was in, in the an experience of very real suffering, persecution even. 
they're looking at James and they're looking at this future promise and they're, the question that had to be running through their minds is, okay, what do we do now? H- how do we live this out? In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the persecution, how, how do we, this vision that you've given us of the obedient life, what, how do we get there? And James ends his letter by simply saying, you should pray. You should pray, which I get, right? Like that, that can be this oversimplistic answer that we say and things. And yet, even though the promise of prayer seems so simple here, James is not being naive, which I think is why so many of us, when we talk about this, we, we look at the promise and we say, it looks beautiful and I can see it and I want it. And then we think about the experience and it's just more complicated than that for me. And so I want to just, I want to look at, at some qualities of prayer that James offers. If you have your Bibles with you, we can turn to James chapter 5. We're going to wrap up this portion of, of James's letter today, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read through this, and then we'll, we'll talk a bit about it, this prayer. This is what James writes. He says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Those last two verses, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there today other than to say that James kind of his signature uh, at the end of this letter is we've been talking about James as kind of a, a New Testament version of wisdom literature. He's basically saying if, if at the end of all of this, be reminded that we have a role, responsibility to point each other to the way of Jesus as we live this out. That's, that's tantamount to what, what we do here. But I wanna, I wanna spend our time, and there's, there's a number of ways we could approach this text today. But I wanna spend our time here today just talking about some of the, the qualities of prayer that James highlights in this last portion of his letter. And just beginning with the recognition and the acknowledgement that prayer, by its kind of definition, is relational. Prayer is, is relational. I think this is one of those things that, that it can be easy when we're working through a text like this to kind of miss the forest through the trees. Like not see what's at the heart of this. I feel like I mention this every time we, we wrap up one of these New Testament letters. But that's simply, I think it's, it's, it's important to note how an author finishes. Because oftentimes, their concluding remarks really highlight or provide 
um, a, instruction on how we can apply all the things that they've been teaching us throughout the letter. And James is no different. As we have seen throughout this letter, James has been uh, describing what a genuine saving faith looks like when it's put into action. And as he finishes this, this letter now, he reminds us that in order to live out a life in faith, we are going to need to experience relational, uh, intimate community with our Heavenly Father. We, we need to be in His presence. The life of obedience that James has described is not easy, right? Particularly when, when we are facing very difficult and challenging times in our life as this early church is. He's saying in order to to live in obedience to him, it is going to be, need to be rooted in this deep, personal, relational time spent with God. And that's what prayer affords us. That's what it invites us into, relational time spent with our Heavenly Father. So look at the way, look at the way James approaches this here. He starts in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Is there anyone that's dealing with difficult circumstances, pain, mourning in their life. Where should we go with that? What do we do in in view of that? James says you should pray. In the midst of the suffering, what you need is you need to enter into the presence of God, spend relational time with him. I think in some ways for us, this this might be somewhat intuitive, that we're, we're, we're inclined when things are difficult, when things are hard, to maybe seek help from from our Heavenly Father. He goes on, is anyone cheerful? Pray, spend time praising God, worship Him. The, The Psalms in the Old Testament remind us that our worship is an expression of prayer where we're acknowledging who God is and what He's done. Saying So when life is going well, you what you ought to do is you ought to spend time in His presence thanking him for the commitment that you're experiencing in this moment in life, right? This is normative for us this week, right? We, we have like carved out time where we're like, let's, let's be intentionally thankful for. I think James is giving us a vision that this ought to be a regular pattern in our lives. Is anyone among you sick? What should they do? We should get together in community. We should Seek God together on their behalf. I think it's worth pointing out here that when when James talks about someone being sick, the Greek word that's translated here, it's a a connotation of more than just physical illness like we might think about it, although it it, certainly includes that. It really refers to weakness of any kind. So whether that's, that's a physical weakness, a, a mental weakness, an emotional weakness, a spiritual weakness. Paul's actually, uh, Paul uses this same Greek word in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, where he ultimately arrives at the conclusion where he says, I'm, I'm boasting in my weakness, same word, because it's in my weakness that he's experiencing the power of Christ on him and in him. So James says when we're, when we're weak, when we don't have the strength in and of ourselves, when we're sick, he says, call the elders of the church together. Gather together other spiritually mature men and women. Ask them to pray over you, to anoint you with oil, and do it all in the name 
of the Lord. Just a quick word here. I I think one of the um, least utilized ministries of our church is our prayer ministry. Meaning that I would venture to guess if I were to play out circumstances in my own life and I were to kind of cast it as saying like that, that you all experiencing some of the same things that I experience, I know that I too uh, infrequently will say, you know what, it's worth me spending some time having somebody pray over me. And I get it, it can be a challenge here because our prayer ministry happens at the front of the room um, on Sunday mornings, on weekend mornings. That's not the only opportunity, but, and, and the crowd is going this way and it requires us to come forward. But can I, I, I think one application that we can make from James here is, is let people pray for you. And we have people who are ready and willing to do that. In our weakness, James says, spend time together with other Jesus followers in relational community with our God so that he will, like he did for Paul, reveal his power in our weakness. James, as he depicts this life of obedience throughout this letter, says it's, it's, it is all based on dependence on him and dependence on him ought to invite us, usher in us into his presence. Prayer is relational time spent with him in, in whatever circumstance experience you're having in your life. I've told this story before, but the, the image that always comes to mind for me in this is uh, when my nine-week-old um, my youngest daughter was nine weeks old, and she got horribly sick with uh, RSV virus. Was in the uh, um, uh, pediatric ICU for a week at at um, CDH, and there was a point in time in that that week where what I read from the doctors was things were were needed to get better over the next 24 hours. She was really sick, and I was scared. I was like, "This is how do I process this?" and and at night, when we were there in, in the ICU with her, she would be restless. She, would, she wouldn't be able to sleep unless either uh, myself or Sherry was standing next to our crib, and she had her tiny little hand wrapped around our pinky. And, and I just remember this image of her, this child, this baby, needing to know the presence of her father with her. And I had this image in my head as I have my pinky in her crib of me just reaching up to my, because I was scared and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I, I felt all of these things that I was wrestling with and I didn't have good answers. I didn't have all, but I just needed to, I needed to be in his presence. It was like this, this sense of this calming effect of my child knowing her dad was next to her while I was experiencing the effect of knowing my, my heavenly father was next to me. James invites us to spend time with God. Where can we go when we're suffering? What about when we're, we're full of joy and life is going well? Where, when we, where can we go when we come face to face with our weakness? James invites us to pray, to spend relational time in the presence of a sovereign God who loves you, who desires to be with you, and whose very presence empowers us to live the life of obedience that James has been teaching. So James does not teach prayer as kind of this crisis moment response, but rather as a regular 
consistent, consistent pattern of communication with our God. He invites us to meet with him. And so as, as he does so, not only then does he reveal that, that prayer is relational, but he also begins to teach us how prayer is also restorative. Prayer is intended to be restorative. There's an old adage um, that says, it's better to under-promise and over-deliver than it is to over-promise and under-deliver. And, and I can tell you that's true because I have at times over-promised and under-delivered, right? Like where you estimate, like ba- back when I used to take kind of like commissions to build like a table or something for, for somebody, I'd be like, I think I can have this ready in three months, right? And like 12 months later, they're like, when do you think that table might come? Like, um, and, and when we look at this description of prayer, and again, we we lay this into our experience, I think there is a human side of us that says, is this this over-promising and under-delivering? And and I want us to wrestle with that for a minute. Look, Look at what James says here in verse 15. He says, the prayer of faith that will save the sick person. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. But those are, those are bold words from James. How, how are we to view that? Is James suggesting here that, that a prayer for physical healing will be, effect, if, if it's earnest enough, if there's an, enough faith, right, will it be effective? to that end. And if so, how how do we reconcile that with situations where God's people have gathered together earnestly, genuine faith to pray for healing, only to see that person then lose the battle to that illness? And again, I know in a room this size, like for many of us, this isn't just theoretical, right? This is lived experience. And remember how we began, sometimes the promise seems simple and clean, but the experience is complicated. I think it's important to note here, when when James writes this, he's writing to an audience, a community, that their, their prevailing assumption about illness that we experienced in life was the result of some... Um, in, in pagan culture, it would have been some... You've displeased the gods... In, in Christian and Jewish culture, they would have talked about it as sin, right? So that, that the reason that we're ill is because we have in some way offended God. You see this, Jeff referenced this last week when um, in the few verses prior to this, he refers to Job. And if you know that story, you know when Job experiences just total calamity and he has some friends show up in that moment, the friends essentially accuse him of that very thing, that he has done something in his life to warrant all that he has experienced. And James protests. He, he pushes back on that. In John chapter 9, I, I have these, this passage up here. There's another example of this where the disciples come and, and they see a man who has been born blind. Um, he's been blind from, from the time of his birth. And the, look at the assumption here. They ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And now Jesus pushes back on that assumption. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. That's not what's going on. He says, in fact, I, God's going to be glorified through this, this person's affliction. 
Neither Jesus nor James are teaching us that illness is the result of some personal sin, and, and we need to be very careful not to assume that on ourselves or on anyone else. We'll get to James inviting us into confession. That's, that's important here as well, but I want to be careful with how we talk about this. But James does understand the impact of, of sin, the impact of living in a broken world, sin that is both ours and others, and, and how that has affected all of humanity and all of creation, he understands this uh, holistically, that we experience the impact of that brokenness in all sorts of ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, because all of those things in us are connected. And to this, James writes, the prayer of faith will save you. That word there, again, that he uses is, is the same word that we translate other places as salvation. So James is inviting us in, in the midst of a broken world, what we might think of as the disease of sin. He's inviting us in to bring that to our heavenly father who loves us, who would be with us and who is doing the work now and will one day finish the work of restoration in our lives. He says, it will save the sick person. He says, if he has committed sins, he, you, will be forgiven. I've, I've thought about where I've experienced this or how I've seen this in my life and the image that always comes to mind for me, and, and many of you may not know him, but it was a man by the name of, of Pastor Roger Kreitz. Um, he passed away in, in 2014 from um, kidney cancer. And from the time I came to Chapel Street in 2007, the whole time I knew him, uh, Roger was, was battling this cancer. We had multiple times where we gathered together uh, the church staff and, and, and members of the church, and we would pray over him, pray for his healing. And oftentimes Roger would, would get asked the question about um, his expectation of God. If he thought that, that God was going to ultimately remove this, this cancer from his life. And I'll never forget his response. I remember him saying, um, I may or may not defeat this cancer with God's help. But one thing I know for sure is that God healed me a long time ago. Like he already knew he was healed. He had already placed his faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He's like, the, the restoration is secured. This is the restorative work of God. How I experience that and the frailty of this body, I'm leaving that in the hands of the Lord and trusting him in faith. But I know that my prayer to place my faith in him has, has saved me. Look at what he says in verse 16 then. He says, therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. He brings it into this sense of confession. Again, what this invites us into is whatever part of our own brokenness, whatever part of our own rebellion, like we can bring that to the Lord, to our heavenly Father who restores and heals. Which brings us then to this, this third quality of prayer here in, in James chapter 5. And that is simply that prayer is experienced in community. Prayer is experienced in community. As I was working through this, I was, I was thinking of 
prayer like I think of moving, right? I can do it on my own, but it goes a lot better if I have some friends with me. And I think that's what, what James wants us to understand. Look at both verse 14, right? If anyone is among you sick, he should call the elders. He's bringing together the community and then they are to pray over him, anointing with, him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then jump down to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Now, there are, there are all kinds of examples throughout Scripture where prayer and confession are, are, are individual or personal experiences. Even the Gospels talk about Jesus withdrawing to a, a lonely place to pray. He, and he gave us that as a model to follow. So James is not teaching us that prayer and confession are always to take place in community. But he does teach us that they ought to include community. Because the prayer of a, a, a righteous person, right, people that you bring around you who are walking with Jesus in right relationship, he says it has, it's powerful in its effect. The, the healing we desire, the, the, the freedom to overcome addiction in our lives, the grip of sin, the promise of forgiveness, Jesus says, call together the church, gather people together, pray together. He even says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's something powerful and effective about gathering the body of Christ around you, acknowledging the struggle, confessing the sin, receiving prayers on your behalf, and beginning to experience the ultimate healing, the restorative work that James promises to us. And trust me, I get the reaction that says I'm not doing that, right? This is, a, this is a private matter. This is between me and God. I, I know it. I can hear it because I can hear it in my own heart. And here's what I want you to know today. It is confessed sin that has no power over you. It is confessed sin that causes shame and guilt to go away because shame and guilt thrive in isolation and hiding but they are rendered powerless when they're brought into the light. 1 John chapter, um, chapter 1. I'm going to read this real quick. John writes this. He says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have, we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think James is teaching us a very similar truth the freedom of walking in the light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German pastor and theologian, he was a part of the resistance movement against the, the Nazi party and 
ultimately was arrested and, and um, executed as a result of, of his convictions. He wrote a small book and, entitled Life Together. It's, it's all focused on community within the body of Christ. And in the last chapter of that book, uh, Bonhoeffer writes on the practice of prayer and confession in community. That single chapter in that little book is one of the most important things I've ever read in my Christian faith. In part, primarily because it's what convinced me that what James is writing here in James chapter five is true. Bonhoeffer writes this, he says, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. To have the, the body of Christ speak grace over you, to have confess sins and to have somebody look you in the eyes and say there is grace for that. Jesus' blood covers that. That's one of the greatest gifts I have ever received in my life. And, Jesus, and James teaches us that it is experienced in the power of prayer and community together. I don't have time today, but I love how James wraps up here by, by pointing to Elijah, who again, that, that original audience would have looked at as kind of like this sort of spiritual superpower and power, or superhero, and James says he was just a guy. He was just a human being like any others, and what God did that was miraculous through him wasn't based on the power of Elijah, it was based on the power of the one he prayed to. And he invites us to do the same. Let me pray for us. Father, we just, um, we thank you for this letter that James has written. We thank you for his passion for the church and his desire to see us live out our faith in very real, um, on display ways. And he knows, Lord, that if, that if we are going to do that with any degree of consistency and success in our life, it is going to be the result of us spending relational time in your presence, talking with you, meeting with you, being restored by you. So I pray, Lord, that we would be a community of prayer, that we would seek each other out, that we would experience what James talks about here, prayer in community, when we bring our needs to each other where we ask uh, people whose faith we admire, whose journey we've seen, and invite them to speak into our lives so that we can, like Bonhoeffer wrote, not be alone in our own sense, sins, but experience the presence of God with us. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, before I offer this morning's benediction, uh, grab one of these on your way out this morning. I think you'll be encouraged and blessed by that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, each and every week, we have a, a prayer ministry, a prayer team that is available. If we can pray with you this morning, um, know that that is one of the ways that we communicate and experience what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, and it's a privilege to, to walk with you in that. Uh, our generosity, generosity boxes are by our side doors. Um, those are available to you if you came prepared to give today. We're so thankful for that. Um, join us next week. We're going to start our Advent series in, in John chapter 1, and we're looking forward to having you here with us for that. Feel free to invite a, a friend or a neighbor um, to join you here for worship. And now receive this morning's benediction. Go in the name of Jesus Christ.
who has been for us um, our great Savior, who is worthy of our faith, and who is ultimately our salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.